This episode is sponsored by the Peter Westbrook Foundation. The Peter Westbrook Foundation is a not-for-profit organization that uses the sport of fencing to enrich the lives of young people from underserved communities in the New York metropolitan area. Founded in 1991 by legendary saber fencer and Olympic bronze medalist Peter Westbrook, the foundation is committed to empowering participants with essential life skills. To learn more, visit peterwestbrook.org. In this episode, we have Keith Smart. Keith missed out on a medal by one point in the Athens Olympics, overcame the loss of both parents and a medical condition where he was told he would never fence again to win silver in 2008. He then attended Columbia Business School. Well, Keith, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Yassim. I'm really excited to chat with you. We've been able to uh, nurture a friendship over several years now, and so um, uh, that's why this is especially meaningful to me. Um, I'd love for you to share at the outset um, uh, about uh, your family origin, and then I think um, New York figures so centrally to your life story. Um, uh, (laughs) Share with us about uh, those those beginning uh, time periods. I grew up in the neighborhood of Flatbush, Brooklyn, in uh, Brooklyn, New York. So that neighborhood, Brooklyn, when I was growing up, was very ethnically concentrated, each neighborhood. And so Flatbush was known as a mini, like, Caribbean, West Indies. My mother's from Jamaica, uh, so she moved to the States in her early 20s. And my father, he was from Brooklyn, but his parents from West Africa, Cameroon. So place on my bucket list that I would love to visit. Uh, Did you visit Jamaica while growing up? I spent all of my summers in Jamaica uh, from like zero to like 12 or 13. And um, it it, it gave me a different perspective going to Jamaica. I was on a farm, so no air conditioning. It it also gave me a a greater appreciation for uh, when I would come back home every summer to start the school year. Uh, and I would just, and it realized like, wow, we're, we're really lucky. I can't think of uh, two more contrasting settings from Flatbush to the farm. <laughs> like, well, that um, uh, differing viewpoint is so important. And it's great that uh, your parents had the uh, sense uh, abilities to do that. I would love to talk about how you first came to learn about fencing. My dad um, was working at Sports Illustrated, um, and so an article came across his desk that said, you know, there's this uh, uh, African-American Olympian who's starting a foundation called, and for uh, kids from New York City called Peter Westbrook, uh, who was an a bro- Olympic bronze medalist in 1984. And... My dad was always like very, both of my parents, very forward thinking. When he told us about uh, fencing, uh, I was skeptical initially. And then he was like, well, it's just like Star Wars, blah, blah, blah. I had never heard of it. <laughs> and and I, I was like, okay, great. And what really um, attracted Aaron, my sister, and I to going to fencing, believe it or not, was the fact that we got to go to Manhattan. Uh, and at the time, from Brooklyn, our whole world was like within a one-mile radius of our home. And so now we would be able to go to Manhattan on a weekly basis. And it was just such a treat. It's such a joy for us. Uh, so we, we kind of jumped at it. And 
uh, I ended up being one of the first students to start in the Peter Westwick Foundation. That's amazing. And so um, you're 11 years old, you have this experience and you begin to like it. Or did you resist it in the beginning? Was there parental <laughs> pressure to continue? Uh, yeah. So I, I had a love-hate relationship with, with fencing for several years uh, when I first began. Um, I, I would go first because I was like, oh, the novelty of going to Manhattan. Then once that wore off, I, uh, my parents kind of had to force me to go. And then I was like, okay, great. I'll, I'll like reluctantly go to practice. And then I just wasn't excelling as fast as my sister. And we both fenced the same weapon at the time, foil. And she really took pleasure in beating me. So at that point, I really despised going to fencing practice. And uh, it, it wasn't until uh, the coaches switched me to Sabre uh, a couple of years after that, when I really started to embrace it more. There's nothing like sibling rivalry. Yeah. <laughs> to make it happen. Erin <laughs> is how much younger than you? Uh, she's 18 months younger. Okay. So pretty close in age. Um, now, what do you think it was that the coach saw that where he suggested switch your weapon from foil to saber? It's a really good question, Nassim. Um, so our coach at the time was uh, somewhat forward-thinking. His name was Aladar Kogler, a Hungarian guy, and he put us through a bunch of cognitive and physical tests. So, like, how fast can you memorize, a, like, like where, like, the lights light up on a pegboard or something like that? We would do these tests. And then as well as simple things like how far can you do a standing board jump? How fast can you do a shuttle run? And, and then he also like just asked us like basic questions of like, do you like fast action movies? Do you like slower movies? Like, <laughs> and as he was like interviewing us and like putting together all of our, uh, our test results, he kind of like took our, this group um, of eight kids at the time and he just split us up into th the three weapons. So uh, based off of that, he like put me in saber uh, because pretty fast um, and I had really strong legs. That was like the primary reason because of all the years I had been playing basketball. So I could jump pretty far. And and then I, and I told him like, I love action movies, blah, blah, blah. That's so fascinating. I would say it's also so prescient, this idea of cognitive profiling. I mean, we, we hear about that happening these days and I'm familiar with some companies who are doing that type of work. Um, uh, to see where people are best suited. But um, that is exceptionally forward-thinking. Uh, so you, you've been surrounded by forward-thinking people uh, uh, growing up. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, to start fencing when I did, it literally, um, it was like the start title line. Uh, being that I was in New York City, uh, the Cold War had literally just ended. So you had an influx of all these Eastern European coaches, and their first port of entry was New York. So we were like literally surrounded by all this talent of co great coaching. And, um, and then, um, you know, like a lot of the previous generation of Olympians had just decided to retire. And so they wanted to like give back as well. Wow. What an amazing confluence of events. You have to, when you think about the things happening, like Eastern European coaches coming over after the fall of communism and then the old guard of Olympian medalist um, retiring 
um, that really created a pathway. So you, you fenced through high school and, and of course in college and uh, did your choice of college, was that influenced by fencing? It was significantly. Um, so I, I would, when I was coming out of high school, uh, I went to Brooklyn Tech, which was a really competitive New York City high school. The thought was to either go to an Ivy League school fence, and I still wasn't like a great fencer. I was kind of on that upward trajectory. Or, um, but I knew if I did that, I would also have to work a lot uh, to because they didn't have scholarships to pay for the school. Or I could get a college scholarship, which was always my parents' number one goal. Ultimately, took a full scholarship to St. John's University because it allowed me to uh, stay with like my coaches and the program there, ready to kind of step into like just training a lot, which really accelerated my development in fencing. That's fantastic. And congratulations on winning that full scholarship. That's really extraordinary. So um, talk about um, then your progression in in fencing through college and post-college. I got the opportunity at St. John's to like really see like how people professionalize sports. In one year, uh, by the time I was finished with my freshman year, I had gone from being ranked the equivalent of like 15th in the country to number one in the country uh, for the senior division. And yeah, I was like, as I kept on going through college, I was able to be successful winning a couple of NCAA individual titles and one team title and really like changed the culture of fencing at St. John's where um, now like it became a powerhouse where kids that would have gone to Harvard or Stanford or Notre Dame wanted to go to St. John's. Like that training and methodology led to me uh, qualifying for the first Olympic team in 2000 when I was a senior in college, which was a great experience uh, because I was able to um, take redshirt that year, take a year off. The school paid for everything, and basically they sponsored me. And I, yeah, yeah, and uh, thank you. And I uh, trained all year, uh, went to the games. and going to the game was a great experience for me in Sydney because I realized that what I thought was great training really wasn't next level training. Once I started being around uh, some of the other U.S. athletes, such as like the Michael Phelps, the Marion Jones, uh, and how like the U.S. Olympic Committee looked at me and, and some of my teammates, they were like, oh, yeah, you guys made it, but you're not even treating this seriously. You're celebrating making the games, whereas everyone else is focused on trying to win a medal. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. So it gave me something to think about when I when I flew home. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, I would love to dive into that a little bit, this idea behind rigorous training and then next level training. Um, I mean, it's very clear that you got there. You went to the next level training, but what did that entail? What was What was the difference? At the games, I was talking to a few of my German teammates who had won medals, uh, not teammates, but like friends who had won medals for like their, for Germany. And I was like, we're the same age. How did you guys do this? And they're like, Keith, you're not even training like how we are. And what, and so what I shifted was, A, I incorporated video uh, analysis into my uh, training. So I really started getting rigorous, analyzing like what I was doing right, what I was doing wrong, and being honest with myself with like what people could beat me on. Um, I also incorporated uh, mental training, 
so vi like visualization, uh, being able to focus, uh, not going to practice, being comfortable going to practice and focusing on an action to get better at versus trying to always win made a huge shift for me. And I went from in two years uh, going from, or three years, excuse me, like being ranked like a hundredth in the world to being ranked number one in the world. Uh, Wow, that's extraordinary. I'm so impressed with those changes that you adopted. And it really speaks volumes to your character um, to be self-critical and uh, do that analysis and say, okay, what's going to really help me improve my game? Um, takes a lot of guts to do that. So kudos, <laughs> Keith. Well done. Thank you. When you talked about the mental side of it, um, I, uh, was that a challenge for you or like what kinds of things did you have to adopt or practices did you um, shift to? Would you start seeing like a sports psychologist or? It's definitely a, a challenge initially. I, I went to a couple of sports psychologists uh, and I, they gave me some good tactics, but uh, a lot of it for me was um, I had to like be self-aware. Uh, well, I had to recognize that, you know, I don't fence my best when I'm angry. So like really uh, focusing on like calming down my breathing and doing breathing exercises if I felt like my heart rate jumping up because I couldn't process the information fast enough. And a lot of people think, oh, you're, you, you fence best or you, or you box best when you're angry. And like, that's actually wrong because you're leading to more tension and therefore you're like telepath, telegraphing your moves. And I didn't realize that until I started uh, adding that into like with video analysis. So I would like look at a tape, a videotape. I was like, wow, I was really angry here. And then I would get beat like the next four touches in a row. And I realized I was telegraphing all of my moves. So Amazing. Really figuring out how to control myself. <laughs> when you say telegraphing your moves, you're basically, it was a reveal to your opponent. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I didn't, and it took me a while like I like we're the opposing coaches is in particular uh, European coaches. They're professionals. Like uh, they re, they analyze uh, what like trigger people and and so like maybe something like hitting you hard or like arguing a touch that's obviously against you, uh, and that historically would get me mad. And now it's oh well, let me just like walk away, focus on the next point. Yeah. Yeah, so astute. Wow, that's extraordinary. Thank you for that um, thoughtful sharing. Uh, it was really great. So now it's um, like 2003. You're ranked number one in the world. Yeah? That's correct, yes. And that's a great way to go uh, head towards the the Athens games in 2004. Yeah, no, it, it, was, it was exactly what I had um, wanted to accomplish um, from my experience in Sydney. So heading into the Athens game, the U.S. Olympic Committee now looked at me as a medal contender. I felt great going into the games. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, what happened to me in 2004, we had two opportunities to win a medal. Mm -hmm. The first was we were in the semifinal round and I, uh, uh, the winner would go into the gold medal match. And um, I lost like by one point. The next match was against Russia, which had been, you know, a powerhouse for as long as I can remember. And uh, we were up, like what in fencing terms is an insurmountable lead. Uh, we had like a 
five touch lead. Uh, so I only had to get five more points to 45 and my opponent had to get 10. Um, and, uh, and I ended up losing nine to four. So 45, 44 again. And this time, uh, we, we, we ultimately finished fourth or we finished fourth after that and Russia won the bronze medal. And so losing both matches by one point, uh, uh, was like something unforeseen. No one had ever seen that. And, I had a, like, it took me months to, like, process what went wrong. And once I really, like, kind of dug into, like, man, how did I mess up? Like, what happened? Like, got, got over the anger and the shock. Uh, I realized it was all my fault. I had abandoned all those mental tactics we had talked about before. And instead of thinking about the next point, not getting distracted, I started thinking about the victory parties, like what's going to happen uh, in New York everything but uh thinking about my opponent and when that happened uh you know i lost track of the game plan and i wasn't tracking what he was doing versus what i was doing and uh next thing you know i'm in like a, a dog fight where it's a tie score and by the when it was 44 44 i could see it in retrospect watching video analysis of that mat i was so scared and nervous and tight i just froze and he beat me fair and square that was so extraordinary, Keith. I really commend you for being so raw and honest um, about uh, that experience and the uh, responsibility you're accepting for for that. Uh, that's a real you're being very generous, uh, and I really appreciate that. That's it's moved me tremendously. I know people listening to this are going to be moved as well. Thank you, thank you. It, it took me quite some time to become honest with uh, what went wrong and. And candidly, the worst feeling in my one of the worst feelings in my life was like explaining to my teammates that it was my fault. Well, again, the the honesty and the sincerity with which you're approaching that. I mean, to be so close um, is is very hard to swallow. Um, it's a, that's that's challenging. But you, you took the time, you spent the months to f see what went wrong and uh with a very brave face you relayed that to your teammates and you, that takes a lot of courage and so i want to acknowledge that as well Thank and you. then did those experiences then become uh, a weapon of sorts to compel you forward wholeheartedly uh what what i i became so depressed uh for lack of a better that I, I stopped fencing uh altogether for one whole season and i uh took that whole year off and lost my ranking lost everything and um it, the only thing that snapped me out of it was my father passed away unexpectedly in the summer of 2005. when that happened i realized oh wow it jolted me out of my fog and i was like life is really short and tomorrow is never promised. So I need to like really figure out what went wrong and go back to the things that I love, which is fencing. And uh, as I was returning to fencing, I really started to uh, uh, kind of go back to like, uh, what do I need to do differently to get to the back to the next level? So I really humbled myself and asking like people like, how did you beat me? Like, what do you think I messed up at in Athens? And I, I think it made me a better fencer, candidly, uh, because as uh, as I started to like climb back up the rankings, I was able to like 
basically get back into the top five world ranking uh, by the time the Beijing games were uh, coming around. Great. So yeah, you're back in the top five. You're heading to Beijing. Tell us about those Olympic games. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I felt like everything was going according to plan. Uh, candidly, um, I was back in the top five in the world and I just qualified officially for the Olympics. Uh, and I was uh, flying home from Algeria, uh, like the final Olympic qualification tournament. And um, uh, when I landed in, in New York, uh, I felt lightheaded and I just assumed it was natural like jet lag because I had a, a layover in Paris or so I was like, oh, whatever. The next day, I uh, I, I uh, woke up with blood blisters in my mouth. I was like, huh, this is odd. And and then a few hours later, I had blood coming out of my eyeballs or eyelids, as well as uh, my hands were covered with these blood blisters. And that's when I knew something was wrong. And so I went to uh, the hospital in, in Brooklyn, and uh, the doctors were first like astonished that I had checked myself into the hospital after they took my vitals and they instantly put me in intensive care, like straight away, uh, where I was, uh, attached to, uh, ventilators and, uh, um, you know, they called, uh, uh, the infectious disease team and basically like what's going on now with COVID. Uh, I had like the same sort of treatment and, uh, it, Oh my goodness. At that point, the doctors had told me I would never fence again, let alone um, do any physical activity. Oh my so, God. What a thing to hear. Within six weeks, I was uh, fully recovered. Um, so I lost maybe like two months of training, pretty much clear to start fencing again with the games only two months away in August. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, my mother passed away from cancer. I basically didn't do any like Olympic training until like mid June when everyone else had been training nonstop. And, uh, when I, when I finally like got back into it, I, uh, like had to like really double down on all the things we had talked about, like video analysis, uh, mental training. I did a ton of like mental, like breathing exercises, um, really focusing on tactics the proximity of losing your mom to to the games is really extraordinary i'm sorry you had to go through that when i got to beijing um it was you know my a lot of my extended family was able to come um because my parents weren't there obviously so that was a treat and uh you know it was also a, such a blessing because my sister erin she won a silver medal um the day before i had to compete and uh she was also the team anchor or the team captain for for women's foil so when i got up um i had faced the uh, same opponent i had faced in uh, russia uh excuse me in athens in russia and <laughs> it was a reverse score literally so this time they were up 40 to 35 and the winner would win a medal um literally like the same exact thing and uh you know kind of going back to what i had discussed uh because we had I hadn't fenced in like three months. No one had seen me fence since like end of March, so they didn't know what to expect from my style. Uh, they knew, but they didn't know that I had changed so much. And that's something that I learned about after the uh, the Beijing Olympics. Essentially, beat uh, my opponent uh, nine to four. 
So come, coming back from down 40 to 35 to winning 45-44 and doing touches that he had never seen before. <laughs> That's a phenomenal story. That is really great. And so that was that a semifinal match? or That was that, that, that was a semifinal match to go into the gold medal bout. To know that we were able to beat them under the same circumstances that they've beaten us, uh, it made it really a, a, a fun experience. That's fantastic. That's really extraordinary. And then um, walk us through the, the gold medal match. Yeah, so the gold medal match was, um, it was, I think, in retrospect, uh, we fenced France, and we were, candidly, I think we were a stronger team, but we emotionally had spent so much energy uh, with Russia, and, uh, and the previous t- bout was Hungary. Um, where we were just so elated beating like two teams ranked numbers one and three in the world that I don't think we tactically reset candidly for um, France. And so I, you know, we, I brought it back in the last match, but ultimately we ended up losing by four touches, uh, 45 to 41, I think. And, uh, but it was, we were just so ecstatic of beating Russia, uh, preventing them from winning a medal. The guys were really happy that we'd done it but then they were also upset at me uh a year later because um i had made the decision prior to the beijing game that 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 was going to be my last uh fencing tournament and even even though i I, like after the beijing olympics uh i was ranked number two in the world and so no one in the world thought i was going to retire from fencing after the games uh and so they were the U.S. Olympic Committee, they were like, oh, yeah, you know, let's get ready to win gold in uh, London. And I was like, no, uh, sorry, <laughs> I've already made my plans. I'm going to business school. <laughs> and uh, so I started a Columbia business school, like, days after the Beijing Olympic Games. Right? People, no one thought I was, like, being, uh, I was going to really go go forward with it. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's extraordinary. And that's um, it's a tough decision to say that you're going to no longer compete professionally the way you had and so what what drove that decision uh I I think a lot of it for me was you know I had wanted to like I've always had this balance with my parents of you know have a strong educational background and also be diversified in your experiences like from a kid going to Jamaica you know uh and I wanted to do something different um, you know, I knew I could probably fence another two more Olympic Games until uh, 2016, maybe even 2020, if I really wanted to. Uh, like my mentor, Peter Westbrook, he kept fencing until he was 45. Wow. And I, but for me, I was like, I don't want to like be known for the rest of my life as a uh, fencer. Uh, you know, I want that to be one of many things that I accomplish in my life. I also knew how that movie ends if I continue to fence. Like I saw my friends that, you know, they kind of like follow this path of ultimately becoming a fencing coach. And then, uh, you know, uh, they open a fencing club. And that didn't really um, excite me as much as like trying to do other things in life that uh, are very challenging and I might fail at. But at least I know I would have like pushed myself. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Um, and you're active today with the Peter Westbrook Foundation. Yeah, I, I extremely. Um, so it's it's fascinating to me. Like I went from becoming the initial student with Aaron to being like a mentor, 
a volunteer coach to now serving on the board of directors and thinking about how do we expand the reach of the Peter Westwick Foundation and grow and like touch even more lives. So that's amazing. That's really great. I love how you're giving back um, to the foundation. So after business school, you go into uh, wealth management. That's right. Yeah. So I went, I went into wealth management at a Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, did that for about three to five, five years, excuse me. But by the year three, I realized I didn't like it at all. Uh, I met these uh, medical students from NYU who had a concept to integrate resistance bands into clothing to help uh, their medical patients lose weight. Ended up uh, quitting my job to work with the guys. And, yes. you know, like four, four out of the five medical students uh, were like, whoa, this is too hard. And they went back to medical school. So me. <laughs> that is really funny. It's just like being a med school student is easier than being an entrepreneur. Oh, yeah. They, the, it, it took them about like four months. So we were all working together in like a WeWork. And uh, <laughs> they they took the semester off, and the, the medical students are like, "This is just way too hard. We'd rather be in med school than be, be an entrepreneur." <laughs> Co-founder and I, we ended up creating a company called Physiclo, which means physics plus clothing. Huge challenge. Um, learned a lot, failed a lot. Uh, ultimately, uh, we got to a point where I made some tactical mistakes uh, in retrospect. Uh, and me and my co-founder, we kind of like saw like the company was like floundering because we had taken on a little bit too much debt because uh, we like like were overconfident in what we could do in terms of like uh, social media advertising. Because when I ultimately decided to step away, I think even though some would call it a failure, I would call it a, a good life lesson, kind of what happened to me in the Athens Olympics where I had to be really honest with myself about like what went wrong. It led me to the opportunity uh, where um, Chelsea Pears was uh, spinning off their fitness brand and they were looking for someone uh, to create this brand new business uh, where it's a fitness uh, uh, business um, in, outside of the Chelsea Pears flagship of like a, a million square feet. And so they wanted somebody with entrepreneurial experience, passion for fitness, and um, you know the ability to communicate to their investors and their board of directors, and essentially be someone that could uh, also manage a team. That's fantastic. And you did that about three years ago. Three years ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And um, you have two children. I do. I do. So I have a. Uh, uh, recently turned eight-year-old, May first, and then a uh, congrats uh, to her today. Thank you. And then uh, we uh, we have a younger son, uh, eighteen-month-old. So my wife and I, um, she she runs a business development for Box Media. So we we kind of play tag team uh, as we're quarantined at home, trying to like be a second-grade teacher and a babysitter for our younger son while getting work done. <laughs> well, you're, you're an amazingly humble soul, Keith. Um, just, uh, again, I, I want to acknowledge and salute the courage that it takes to assess oneself and see where things went wrong and improve. And I think that um, you're going to be wildly successful because of it. You have been wildly successful because of it. Yeah, you know, all these experiences, I mean, I, 
losing two parents in a short span of time and um I mean, that's what you've gone through has been really really something you're really well prepared <laughs> well thank you <laughs> well thank you so much for having me and uh truly value our friendship as do i, I. Can't I can't see you again in the la <laughs> thank you so much again Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.